welcome to episode 192 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Sunday, 1st of July, 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz. Now, if you listened to the previous show, you'll know I've been stateside for the first staging of Crank Tank's Impact Media Summit. This was held in Sun Valley, Idaho, and you can read a report and check out some pics from the event on bikebiz.com. The photos show just a little of why 11 North American bike journalists and two British ones were invited. The mountain bike riding in Sun Valley is world class. We rode in gondolas to near the top of Bald Mountain before descending on new season specialised stump jumpers. And on the Harriman Trail, we rode gravel bikes brought along by Turner and Moots. We also got to ride on electric bikes, including e-mountain bikes from Specialized and BMC, and the not-yet-released new e-road bike from Basque brand Orbea. I grabbed some audio with Jeff McGuane, who runs Specialized US Business. I also spoke with former pro cyclist Thomas Pren, author of Racing Tactics for Cyclists, and... Orbea's e-bikes product manager, John Orcheggi, told me about a new version of the company's Gain Road e-bike, which launches officially tomorrow. Those are the face-to-face interviews. I also recorded a People for Bikes draft meeting, which Adrian Montgomery of Crank Tank organised to close the summit. This featured the Queen of Pain, seven times world mountain bike champion Rebecca Rush, on her gravel bike event, Rebecca's Private Idaho. It also included land manager John Kurtz, who talked about e-mountain bike access to Idaho's trails, and how the state's let's all get along together philosophy could be a template for the rest of the US. And also speaking at the draft meetup was veteran bike journalist Zap Espinoza. E-bikes are just bikes, said Zap. They're not Ebola. That all makes for a packed show. Be sure to check out the links and more on the show website at the hyphen spokesman. Com. To start us off, here's Specialized Jeff McGuane. So Jeff, we are on a beautiful sunny day in Sun Valley, Idaho. We are at the Impact Media Summit and we are very shortly beginning going out on uh, a bunch of your bikes. So we've got some Specialized bikes here, we've got folks from different companies uh, and we're going to be going up on the trails to test some uh, e-bikes and first of all I'm actually going up on a non-e-bike so we're going to be switching out. Um, what do you call e-bikes in the company and so I shouldn't really say e-bikes what do you call non-e-bikes because some people say acoustic some people say analog what, what, what's the internal term in, in specialized? Well, you know, we use lots of terms, and that's one of those things where we haven't really settled in on uh, one, but we use everything from classic to analog, uh, or just, honestly, bikes. Um, and we really, uh, on the e-bike side, 
our, our nomenclature for that is we call it turbo. Um, so our whole electrified or pedal assist category is called turbo. And you've been in that space since 2009. So you've yep. been around a while in this, in this, in this category. Yeah, we came, we came into the market uh, in 2009 with a Speed Pedelec Class 3, which was a uh, speed commuter, really performance driven, and very small part of the market, but very aspirational part of the market, as Specialized tends to do uh, when they're entering a new segment, um, pu- you know, very pure to our brand. And from that point, we really discovered the potential of what, uh, how e-bikes fit into uh, the ecosystem of cycling, but more importantly, into the specialized ecosystem. And that was really the beginning of uh, that, that aha moment where we went from a rear hub uh, driven motor to uh, a complete integrated system development. And then mountain bikes, so getting the same kind of technology onto mountain bikes. When was that for Specialized? So that project, um, well, the first bike to market was 2014, and that was the uh, Turbo Levo. And it was you know, you know, best in class. Uh, it was uh, actually this year was voted uh, e-mountain bike of the year. Um, and, uh, but before 14, that project had initiated several years before, and um, it was, uh, the vision of our uh, our uh, turbo team that really brought this idea that um, you know this fully integrated system design and how that could really create the, the ultimate uh, e uh, mountain bike trail bike experience. Would it be fair to say that Mike Sinyard, owner, founder of Specialized, wasn't a huge fan of this project in the beginning? He was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. Uh, I. I he tells the story um, of uh, when the team in Switzerland had a prop- proposition that we get after this type of project. Um, he was a detractor. He's like, "That's not for us. That's not specialized." You know, you know, we just you know didn't understand how this type of uh, product or this concept was going to fit into the ethos of specialized, and and that continued until he rode the first prototype and that changed his mind. That changed the, the entire uh, disposition of the company relative to uh, how uh, much we invest and how many resources we bring uh, to this whole category and experience. And you know, from there to now, I mean, we had a small team working on this, uh, working both internally on design, as well as working with development partners in batteries, controllers, and, and, and motors. And now, today, we have a 40-person design team in Switzerland outside of Zurich that focuses exclusively on you know, you know, developing technologies and furthering our, our product uh, line in, in uh, Turbo. So I'm a historian, and I'm a historian uh, that specializes in like the 1890s and, and how cycling developed then, and how cycling and motoring kind of merged in the early 1900s. So an awful lot of um, bicycle companies basically became car and motorbike companies. So how big is the electric for you now as a segment, but how big do you think it can get? And I'm going to be really quite strident here and saying, could Specialized become uh, a non-bicycle company? Is Is that in the realms of possibility? Well, the first question is, how big is it for us? It's small but growing. Um, it has become our number one selling model globally. 
uh, regionally uh, extremely popular in Europe and gaining popularity here in the U.S. Uh, we've, we're seeing growth rates of you know 2x uh, prior year, so and we see that accelerating in the next uh, few years, and we see e-bikes. Uh, our turbo category being a majority of uh, the market here in the U.S. Uh, within the next five years. So we're real optimistic that uh, this innovation, similar to disc brakes or full suspension or front suspension or you know frame material technologies, is not just another segment. It's a legit innovation that is really wide, widely applicable across so many different rider experiences that it will continue to grow and grow and grow. So and then, the final question about could Specialized become <laughs> a non-analog bicycle, come whatever term you want to use it, you, you could just imagine, say 20 years time. 20 years is a long time, um, but you know, we've, you know, I think as you see like the industry, just the, the mobility changing, um, and you know, you see car companies getting you know, major, uh, making major investments into cycling. You know, recently Uber and Lyft both acquiring ride-share bike programs. I mean, there's definitely this merging of the you know, mobility to where uh, you know that's going to become a connected ecosystem. And pe- the way people get from point A to point B it will be d- determined based on how do they do it most efficiently. So in that regard, we already are there in terms of uh, the machines we create for mobility. And uh, yeah, we'll see what the future has uh, in store for us. Now, I believe you're not impacted by the, the potential Trump tariffs because you're not making bikes in, in China. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, um, this is a recent development um, where um, the trade negotiations have led to a p- potential tariff and, and duties on imports into the U.S. market, uh, specifically on e-bikes. And uh, it's based on the point of origin of, of the products, and we, we do not manufacture our e-bikes uh, largely in China. So um, technically speaking, we uh, would be excluded from that impact. However, um, yeah, that's just bad for uh, our industry and the sport. Uh, we're at early days in the development and the adoption of these bikes, and uh, to see uh, potential price inflation because of uh, import duties would be, uh, yeah, it would just be terrible to see. So you've been in the industry. I, I can quite accurately describe you as an industry veteran because I mean I, I first met you. My hairs are graying for sure. We're talking, we're talking twenty plus years. Uh, I mean, you went with Specialized then. So just give us your your thumbnail, your CV from back from the, uh, from when when I first met you. Sure. So twenty five years in in the industry. Uh, kind of a bootstrapping story started uh, early days with a, another American brand called Cannondale and uh, spent uh, 20 years with them uh, working my way around the world in Asia, uh, Japan, Australia, uh, Europe, and then back uh, to the United States to finish out the, that stage of my career. Um, have worked in everything from you know, finance to sales and marketing and product development and innovation. and. Um, you know, I've been involved in some pretty exciting phases of growth in the industry, um, you know, including being a part of, uh, while in Europe, the development of some e-systems, uh, which were, you know, the early days development of, uh, of that whole movement. Uh, so I actually feel real, I'm really uh, biased, um, you know, having been in Europe during the early boom days of uh, e-bikes and understanding how that really changes the, the whole landscape. 
so I'm pretty damn excited to be uh, you know here now and seeing it develop in the U.S. And so, how did you segue into Specialized then? I've uh, been a longtime uh, admirer of the brand as a competitor, um, and had really admired uh, Mike and his vision um, for the business and for the brand. And we'd struck up a friendship over the years, and um, an opportunity uh, to join his team uh, developed, and um, and it seemed like a good fit. And what are we doing here at Impact Media Summit then in in, uh, in Sun Valley? What are you putting journalists on? What are we, what are we riding, and and why? So. Two major focus here. Uh, one is our, we've just launched our new mountain bike trail bike, which is called the, the Stump Jumper. And um, it in itself has a tremendous amount of new innovation. And we're using this as an opportunity to uh, get all of the media out on these bikes to understand, um, you know, similar to e-bikes, the amount of innovation in geometries and in te- in technology in the trail bike category, it's phenomenal. Uh, the market's growing r- really quickly and it continues to evolve. And we're here to showcase some of the, the new things from the asymmetrical design to uh, the new suspension uh, setup um, to really um, you know, get, get, uh, ride, get the journalists out to experience that product. And the second is our uh, Turbo Levo which is a uh, e-mountain bike which we have uh, launched back in 2014 have continued to evolve both the software the motor and uh, the overall design and we're here to uh, yeah to just bring journalists through and and uh, get a first-hand uh, experience on the product thumbs on saddles that's right name of the game I mean that's the name of the game at retail level as well as so a consumer level because you've got a fleet of, the, of these bikes that you're sending around constantly to get people on them. Yes, and as a brand, that's an area that we're really invested in. We, we have a philosophy of working with our retail partners called Integrated Marketplace. And then as the marketplace evolves with online and you know with the marketplace really blurring between digital and brick and mortar, it's been our singular market development focus to really bring it all together uh, to earn the brand of choice for our riders and our retailers. And uh, test riding is a key part of that. And a lot of our digital spend and a lot of the technology investments we've made uh, to either get retailers' inventories up online so riders can find them, or uh, beginning now, where all of our test fleets at retail are now going to be discoverable on our website. And very soon, uh, we're going to be introducing some features where riders can actually uh, schedule in uh, online uh, these uh, test ride experiences at their stores. So test rides centerpiece for how we get more bums on bikes and whether it's the traditional classic bikes or, or the e-mountain bikes, uh, the way that we convert uh, riders one at a time. Thanks to Jeff McGuane of Specialized there. And sticking with electric bikes, here's John Orchega of Arbea. It's uh, Jung Anchegi, and I work for Arbea as uh, e-bikes uh, pro manager. And uh, where do you work from, John? Where, where are you based? I'm based in Spain, in my in Orbea headquarters. And I'm working for, there for already 11 years. And where, where are the headquarters? In Mayavia. Mayavia is in the north pass of Spain, in the Basque Country, very close to Bilbao. Okay, and is that high? Or are you...? No, Basque Country is uh, close to the coast. So uh, we are, the factory is like 150 meters high. But uh, close to us, we have uh, 1,500 motor, uh, meter mountains. Okay. So now here in in um, in Sun Valley, there's actually a Basque connection. Yeah. <laughs> there are Basque people here, and there's yeah, the, the sheep. In the, and yeah. In the, in the past, a lot of Basque people uh, has to go out, and uh, a lot of Basque pe- people came to 
states and also to South America as shippers because we are very good shippers and a lot of them they, they still live here and now they are more or less <laughs> uh, United States citizens. But we're not here to talk about sheep. <laughs> you've got a you've got a, 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 a bicycle yeah. range that you now you can't talk about it completely. Yeah. So we can't go into all the details because it's it's embargoed uh, for for later on. Yeah. But this is uh, so the journalists who are here at uh, at this event are getting a sneak peek. So this is the launch of this particular the, the brand, yeah, the name we, of the brand what, that we can't what, name. What we are launching here is the game concept. Game bicycle. It's a assisted bicycle. We like to say that it's an assisted bicycle and not an e-bike because the concept is different. Where a typical e-bike, the weight is above 20 kilos. Usually they are assembled with mid motors and very bulky and heavy batteries. Uh, Gain is just in the opposite side of assisted bicycles. We are trying to make a very sleek and clean design with no bulky batteries and bulky motors. And also the weight target is, well, target no, now is real. <laughs> So we are in 13 kilos. So Gain was launched last year in Europe. Yeah. And this year we are going to bring them to, to US States. And especially because uh, from the very beginning when we launched it in Europe, all the Orbea dealers in the States, they were claiming, hey, we want the Gain, we want the Gain. The fact is that uh, the homologation rules are, are different. So it took quite long to, to develop the, the homologations. And now we are allowed to, to come here. So uh, we are launching here the, this, this concept. So I rode it today. We went out for a, a, a reasonably long ride. And there's some steep hills here in, uh, in Sun Valley. And I'm able to get out of the saddle and not be thrown from the bike. That maybe would happen with a, a, an e-bike normally. Uh, so there's obviously some clever technology there that gauging my speed and what I'm doing on the bike. So to, to tell us briefly what, what, what's, what's measuring, how, the, how am I getting up out of the saddle? Okay, the, the first principle is that a regular e-bike, even all of them, they are under the same rule that it's that maximum output should be 250 watts nominal. Nominal is one thing, but the reality is another thing. So mid-motors drive unit usually are giving us 800 and 800 watts. In constantly in the most powerful uh, setup but our game concept is more close to a hybrid concept we want to empower your legs and in this way your power is very, very important and we give extra support this extra support in the maximum assistance mode is 200 220 watts okay that's why you feel this smooth and natural pedaling and also we take care a lot of the pedaling feeling with Regular e-bikes, you have to get used to the bike. With this bike, you just pedal and you feel the, that someone is pushing from your back. Okay, that's the concept we, we are promoting. And for a lot of uh, sportive cycler riders, it's more than enough. What do we get with that? We get a more simple bike because a bicycle, it's a very simple piece of mechanics. We want to go back to the simplicity. Bicycles should be something very thin, very sleek. We want to come back. So at the first approach to this bike, 
you say, ah, nice bike. And it doesn't and, look like an e-bike. Yeah. And then you say, hey, come on, it's a bike. No, it's not a e-bike. It's an assisted bike. Okay? When you approach to a, any other e-bike, you only for five meters, you realize that there are some tricks inside. <laughs> okay? So in this bike, we've been working very, very hard because we go to a hub motor that is one of the very ancient uh, ways to electrify a bicycle. But a hub motor has huge advantages for that kind of usage. Why? Because it's simple, it's light, and also it's friction-free. In road racing and commuting or in a sportive ride, you want to have a friction-free assistance. Why? Because you can ride off-mode, you can ride when the battery goes out, you can keep on riding. But also important thing is that when you go above 20 miles per hour in the States or 25 kilometers per hour in Europe, you can keep on riding like a, with a regular bike. Of course, it's more heavy than a regular bike, but it's much more lighter than a regular e-bike. Okay. So your customer is the bike shop. Yeah. But the bike shop customers, who, who are the bike shops telling you who they're... Who, who are buying these bikes? Who okay, do you wait, think? Wait, Who's your average wait, customer, wait, do you wait, think? Wait, we already have some data, and also uh, we already have done some sales. And at the first sight, uh, you can imagine that the end user of this bike is not a young guy. You are thinking more on people above 50 years old, people that they want to come back cycling, and that kind of people. But the reality is that we have a huge percentage of people between 35 years and 45 years. And also we have end users of 30 years. So in this way, it's a huge variety. Why? Because for a sportive point of view, at the first sight, people think now. E-bikes are for people that they cannot. And with this bike, it's just the opposite position. People that they tested, they say suddenly, hey, I'm fit but I don't want to suffer every day. I can't decide how much I want to suffer, or I want to have a very good training. Also, that kind of skills can be, a, uh, can be the end user of, the, of this bike. Okay? So we have a huge variety of, of uh, customers, and also the feedback we are receiving from states is that, that for commuting, a lot of people want a sleek and clear design, and to have an assisted bike, and usually they are young, or at least, mentally young okay? but also in a sportive bicycles what we are seeing is that younger people is approaching to this bike why because cycling is fun and young people want to have fun sacrifice sweat it's important but not as in the past so now more and more young people is coming to this kind of concepts i mean today i did raise a sweat and you can put a lot of effort in or up on, on the hills, for sure. So it's basically, it, you're going further and faster, but it's not as though you're, like, you're sitting back, you're not, you're not sitting back doing nothing. You're, you're still pedaling hard. I mean, I, my Apple Watch tells me that yeah, I, I had a good workout there. What, what I really like is uh, if you see the gain by the, in the Orbea website, there, is a, there are a lot of very uh, interesting phrases. But one of them is that e-bikes are not for lazy guys. Riding an e-bike, it's riding. Of course, you have support. But riding with this bike two hours, three hours, four hours is a sport. 
and for a lot of riders, for example, for me, I'm 42, I'm not super, super fitted, but I'm used to ride. For me, it's the perfect bike. Why? Because for me, going 160, 170 BPMs is not healthy at all. For me, it's better to have controls at 140, 150 average. And in one climb, if I need a little bit more assistance or to follow my friend, I need a little bit more assistance. I have a magic button, I touch it and I get the support. So it's more controlled and it's more healthy and smart. So I guess it's just a very small part of Orbia's business now. What do you think in five, 10 years time? How, how big do you think it can get? I think that we cannot imagine the, the evolution of this, of this concept because uh, for example, for now, even regular bikes are growing during the last years. Think that other customers are not, or other customers, other manufacturers are not, are not doing. They are growing in e-bikes, but all the other categories are going down. In our case, we are pushing all the categories. But what I really like is that uh, basically in Australia, the magazine said last year, is the game the future of bikes? Maybe yes. Why? Because till now, e-bikes means that the bigger the better. The bigger uh, power, better. The bigger autonomy, better. The bigger... We think that there is another way. That is the hybrid. First of all, is the rider, and then we have a small support for that rider. And I think that with this concept, we can get a huge market share that we are not able to predict because it's something so new that even now, people are still trying to understand, but the best way to understand is testing that. And the way we are telling our dealers to promote that bike is having demo bikes in the shop and to say, hey, let's go for a ride, and then we talk. That was John Ortega of Orbea. I'm wearing an Orbea t-shirt while I'm recording this show. Just one of the items of bike swag I picked up at Impact Media Summit. Journalists also got a duffel bag and a bum bag from Dakin, helmets and shades from Rudy Project, shoes from 510, and a metric ton of other stuff. Some of that stuff included some bottles of gloop from Squirt Lubes of South Africa. They were included in the journo swag bags thanks to Thomas Pren, who, as well as representing Squirt, has a startup company called Arsenal Cycling. This had a successful 2016 Kickstarter for some synchronized wireless cycling lights. Take it away, Thomas. So Squirt Lube is a 100% wax-based uh, dry lube, and it's 100% biodegradable. Uh, fantastic product. It's been tested independently to be... Um, when it was tested, it was actually the fastest commercially available lube on the marketplace. Um, and fantastic lube. You know, people just love it for all sorts of conditions from mountain biking to road biking. I love it because I hate to work on my bike and all you have to do is wipe it down with the dry cloth and reapply more, nothing else. So it's fantastic. And then we're also introducing a, a brand new a tire sealant here. It's uh, pretty cool. It's uh, been two years in development. It's, uh, also has a, a packet of um, the bead beads on the front. Yes, so beads. That's like the ceramic beads. And how do you, so I was looking at that thing, well, what do we do here? So what do well, you... so, that, so that's not the final packaging. The final packaging will look more like a salt 
little uh, portable or uh, you know disposable salt dispenser but you would actually uh, pop the the bead and then put it in the tire that way right now so and that's on the market or you it's on the it's actually going to be launched in the market uh, in about two months okay and so, how are you getting that on the market what's you uh, so we have distributors all around the globe so yeah so it's it'll be into bike shops and stuff okay give us a URL for that uh, squirtlube.com Okay, and let's segue into, because you're wearing a black and yellow <laughs> cycling top with Arsenal cycling. When I saw that originally, it's like, Arsenal? Okay. Yeah. Are you the <laughs> yeah. London football <laughs> club here? Well, so I, you're not, you're I, not. I, I'm not. I, I love English football but uh, and, and watch it whenever I can, but uh, no, it's Arsenal as in Arsenal of products to keep you safe on the road. And my first product, which is just about to launch into the marketplace, is a set of um, synchronized lights. And the concept behind this is the same principle. You have multiple lights. So you have a helmet light, seat post, and seat stay. You have three lights. They all strobe at the exact same time, and you're much more visible to a motorist. So a motorist understands their rate of closure on you, and they understand where you are in space much better. It's the same principle as a radio tower for pilots that have multiple lights that strobe at the same time. Okay, and that's on the market? This is about to be on the market. Uh, so it's, I had a Kickstarter um, exactly two years ago, raised $21,000, um, been in development on production products since then. It requires an FCC license here in the United States, so it's always... Do backers have product already, or...? Yes, they do, they yeah, do. yeah, they do, yeah. And, and some in the UK as well, too, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, listeners uh, to this would know your name from, from a, a book. Uh, well, race tactic book. Uh, yes, uh, so I wrote a, a book on racing tactics, um, racing tactics for cyclists, which is the name of it. It's a Velo Press book. It's uh, still on the market. Um, it's uh, really a, a, a series of um, of chapters all about how to how to race a bike. There's Do you not um, just pedal faster is that not just no well so there are a, a million ones. Pedal faster. <laughs> no no there are a million books on the market for how to actually train, but this is the only one on how to race. So it's all about, you know, I was never the, 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 uh, the strongest rider in the pack, I, I, but I was a smart rider. So I would apply my strength, my energy at the right time, and I was very successful. I won the U.S. Pro Championships in 86, um, won a bunch of other uh, pro and pro-am races around. So, yeah. And you were riding at that time with, with folks like Le Monde. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, Greg Le Monde and I rode the 86 World Championships together. Um, and I raced in Europe. I never raced Europe, Europe as a pro. I only raced uh, as a, back then as a U.S. team member. So it's not just pedaling faster. There are tactics involved. How can you boil your book down to some key tactics? Maybe so some chap tactics. chapter headings. Sure. So well, um, so uh, <laughs> so I, I so let me tell you a little bit of history of how I discovered cycling. I, I was a swimmer before. I was a and very serious. I mean, I was going for all American, and you know, it was going to get a. A, um, a scholarship to a college and uh, I rode a bike race and I was immediately hooked. I realized that it, it mattered where you were in the pack, it mattered if you were leading into a corner or the second. And so I just fell in love with it immediately. And, and so, so, so boiling down in my book, so what's the, it, it's all about all sorts of things that you would learn basically over time. I, I decided after I was, uh, after I won the pro championships, I wanted to share as much as I could that I had learned over the years and years of racing. So really it just is, in essence, all of the little tricks that you can do from, you know, I mean, a funny story in there is I, I started a race 
um, and uh, it had a big, big climb in it where everyone was saying you needed like a 42-23. Back then, you know, it was 53, you know, 42 in the front. And um, I broke my derailleur, and my mechanic quickly locked it into the big ring, and I said, well, I'll at least make it to the climb. And so what did I do? I just let up the climb in the 53 <laughs> and rode all the way to the top, and no one ever passed me, even though my pedal cadence was like less than 30. <laughs> No one ever came by me because they just were like, I don't know, shocked. So it's just all sorts of little things about how to, uh, how to ride a pace line, um, how to attack in a pack, how not to attack in a pack, all sorts of things like that. So these are things that the, 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 the commentators on races, they're discussing tactics yeah. constantly. Yeah. Right. So you're basically discussing what the, the, the pundits are discussing all the time. All the time, uh, right. That's why yeah. this guy is doing this now, and yeah. that's why he's gone to the front, and that's why his team is doing this. So yeah. we, we use chapters on team tactics. Team and... tactics, individual tactics, yeah, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And when, when was that written, Tom? Uh, well, let's see, I, actually I wrote it shortly after I won the Pro Championships in 86, um, but I, I actually wrote it as a newsletter that was, I had subscribers um, in the United States and uh, I ran it for about a year and a half and then I retired from cycling, kind of put it on the shelf and then about 10 years ago I pulled the thing out and um, with Velo Press, rewrote the art, rewrote the the, um, the chapters, and, and it came out with about ten years ago. So, but it's still on the market. Okay, so I, I forgot to get you the URL for Arsenal, but you can get so, us the URL for Arsenal, Arsenal and Velo Press at the same time. Yeah, ArsenalCycling.com. Okay, and Velo Press is. I think it's VeloPress.com. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we're pretty simple here. We're yeah. keeping to the good URL. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks to Thomas Pren there. And now, here's John Kurtz of the Bureau of Land Management kicking off the draft meetup held in the Limelight Hotel in Ketchum, Idaho. Uh, so I'm John Kurtz with the BLM out of Shoshone, uh, Shoshone Field Office, which is about 60 miles south of here. Uh, I've been a recreation planner there for 17 years. Um, been with BLM for 20 years. I first started mountain biking in 1985 or 4 when I bought my first specialized stump jumper, so I've been riding for, for years, maybe not quite on the cutting edges of, of a lot of you guys these days, but uh, definitely been spent a lot of time on this in the saddle. Uh, so here we are talking about e-bikes. Um, one of the first things, I only have about 10 minutes here, so I'm going to have to blow through this and, and hopefully uh, we have some time for a couple of questions, but I just want to make sure that everybody is aware that e-bikes are considered a motorized vehicle by, by, by both the BLM and the Forest Service. So that's how they are classified. Um, so that's one thing, I just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page with realizing that you cannot ride, legally ride uh, an e-bike on an on-motorized trail. Uh, and that's across the country. Um, so I want to make sure we're, we're clear on that. So with the BLM, we're doing a uh, travel management plan in the Wood River Valley, where a lot of you guys are here today. Uh, and this is the first time we've addressed travel planning since 1982. And it's probably, we, we probably won't be revisiting travel planning for quite some time in the future. So we've got one shot here to, to try to get it right. Uh, so the one thing that we're really considering is staying within BLM policy, but creating a new designation for e-bikes. And so that would be, the trail would be designated as a motorized trail, but it would be limited to class one e-bikes and other non-motorized and non-mechanized users. So that basically would be you know, the same way of saying allowing uh, e-bikes on non-motorized trails. But that's the way we have to classify it to stay within BLM policy. 
Um, so anyway, that's something that we will be considering. We've got about 100 miles or so of new trail that's proposed within the travel plan. And I think, depending on which alternative you look at, probably about 70 or so miles would be uh, considered designated uh, as, the, as this new category. So that's something that we're uh, really considering. And like I said, trying to get in front of, of technology. Well, not in front of, but catching up with. Uh, so with that, the one thing that we're required to do is, I, we just can't say class one e-bikes, we have to actually then define what a class one e-bike is. Or if we wanted to have a class two or class three, we have to actually define what that is. So when technology changes next year, or partway through this summer, you know, that's one of the big challenges that we're faced with is, okay, if we do a travel plan, we designate a trail as, as this classification, then what's, what's, tech, what's the next change in evolution in technology? And is that gonna be still considered class one or is that gonna be class one and a half or three or five or what's that gonna look like in the future? So that's one challenge, I guess, that, that I see as a land manager with moving forward is, you know, what are we gonna, how are we gonna shape this? Uh, because like I said, we're, we're overwhelmed with work and we're not looking for things to do. So to go back and revisit this and to change classifications to try to keep up with technology is gonna be a real challenge for the federal agencies. Uh, so I, I throw that out to you um, in terms of that. Uh, so with this, maybe this is kind of hard to see. The, you've got a class one e-bike, but then you also have electronic motorcycles. So you've got a lot of kind of electronic things out there and the, the, the line is blurring in a lot of ways in, through my vision. Uh, you know, you, then you've got the class two and you've got the class three. And granted, they're maybe limited to certain miles per hour, but you know, who was it? Adrian said, well, hey, what happens when you chip it? And all of a sudden they're moving faster. Um, so again, the, the line is blurring. And then all of a sudden if we say, hey, we're just gonna limit it to class one e-bikes, then what happens, what happens to the electronic motorcycle riders when they come to you and say, wait a second, we're quiet. We're, what's the difference in impact? Because the one thing we're required to do is when we do an environmental assessment through the National Environmental Policy Act, if you know, don't want to get uh, all into the, the minutia of that, but when we do analysis, we're going to look at what are the differences in impact between, it was, of course it was a lot easier back in the old days when you had a motorcycle and a mountain bike. But now all of a sudden it's starting to blur, so we're trying to think, okay, what are the differences? And what are the differences in impact to the trail tread, uh, to wildlife, to soils, to watersheds, all those different things that we have to then think through, okay, how is this gonna impact all of these things and do our best to try to disclose those impacts before we make a decision. So with this new technology, and there's not a lot of great research out there. I mean, there's been a little bit, a couple of studies that have been done in terms of impact of trail tread, uh, but there's all these other questions that are out there that we need to try to figure out some solutions to and how to analyze and disclose those impacts before we just jump in with both feet. So those are some of the things that we really uh, have to think about quite a bit. And then the implementation challenges. The one thing that's really cool about with, with our travel plan is we're, like I said, we're proposing to build more trails. And so when you've got that with a new piece of technology, all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of the, the you, you got the downhill flow trails, but now if you got an e-bike, maybe we're building uphill flow trails. We can maybe do some things to design some trails that can accommodate the technology and to, to incorporate that into, into what we're building and designing. And then that can actually then also help you know, minimize speeds, um, address user conflicts that we could see. Maybe the user conflicts were from downhill stuff, but now we've got uphill people going faster, so we can try to think through some of those things 
during the construction phase uh, and try to help monitor that to stay in front of some of these issues. So uh, the other thing is consistency with other local jurisdictions. Uh, we've got in here in the Wood River Valley, we've got people that leave from their house and then they ride to the trailhead uh, on a bike path that's managed by the recreation district and then they go through some BLM and then they get to the Forest Service trail system. And so we've got all of these different jurisdictions that, that riders have to go through. And so then what, what's allowed on what different type of jurisdiction? Uh, so again, that's another big challenge we're facing uh, with trying to work with our partners uh, with the Recreation District and the Forest Service to try to make sure we're doing some, some things in a seamless fashion. So as you as a rider, if you're on a Class 2 e-bike and you ride the trailhead and all of a sudden here's a, we can't go here because you're Class 2, we're only allowing Class 1. Um, again, some of those things we got to think about and figure out. Uh, as we work with uh, different jurisdictions uh, to create a, some type of a, a seamless experience. So as you're, as you're leaving from the, the, the Limelight Hotel right here, and then you're going to go ride, you rented an e-bike, we want to make sure that when you at least get to the, to the BLM, that they, we're allowing something to happen that's already existing here in town. Um, so again, trying to come up with some solutions to try to address some of those issues. Uh, and then of course, the, you know, a couple of these things with uh, uh, the evolving technology, but then all of a sudden we've got, can't forget law enforcement. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's not like we're going to have a cop sitting there at the trailhead going, okay, you can go, you can't, you can go, you can't. Uh, but those are some of the things that we we really have to consider, you know, with that. So with this evolving technology, you know, what's, what's going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed? Because, you know, we do have to do some type of enforcement, and a lot of that's social enforcement. You know, it's, it's, it's riders out there saying, you know, coming to us and saying, hey, what's going on? Or they're cornering the, the guy or gal who's riding the, the tech piece of technology that's not approved for that trail and saying, I'm sorry, you can't go here. Um, so again, those are some different things that we're, we have to look at from a, being, being realistic about um, in terms of what we're allowing, not allowing, and then of course the ultimate side of the enforcement. But the biggest thing too with this, with, with e-bikes, and as I was having a conversation with a gentleman earlier uh, this evening, you know, for me and looking at this, we've got a piece of technology and if we can get more people out and join the public lands, that's a good thing. Next up at the draft meetup was Zap Espinoza. To try to get more people to be able to go out there. And I think that if it's an e-bike, and an e-bike, I understand it, it's not, it's, First of all, it's not a motorcycle, so I hate that. It's not a motorcycle, um, but it needs to be managed. And whether it's signage or whatever, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for the sake of management. It has to be managed. But e-bikes are a good thing. They get more people out in the bike industry uh, early on. I remember that people were saying, "I was like, you know, they were, they were treating the e-bike industry as something apart from the cycling industry." And I was like, "You're fools." The, that the cycling industry is alive in boasting profits because of the e-bike, you know? I mean, it's just, it's a phenomenon. And it doesn't mean that every phenomenon has to come along. We have to just fuel it, let it go, and spread where it goes. Um, but I just don't see uh, the e-bike as anything also bad, you know? And I understand it's, you know, class one, two, and three motors. Again, there needs to be some level of system systematic management of who can use what and where. I get that. but. E-bikes are a good thing. Bicycles are even a, a better thing. You know, so I'm the, I'm the editor of the editorial director of this electric bike magazine, and you know, just a little secret between us girls, I don't even ride the damn thing. 
<laughs> no, honestly, I love pedaling my bicycle with no batteries. I don't. I hate all that stuff. On my road bike, I don't use computers. I don't use power. I hate all of it. This, the bicycle to me is a treasure of simplicity, and, and it's just ability to go out and 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 have the wind in the face. The wind in the face. To use Rebecca's word, it's freedom. I just wrote a column about this and ended with the word. It's just about freedom. I mean, try. You know, I, mean, I remember a picture I saw in the paper a long time ago. You know, once once uh, we got the Taliban out of Afghanistan, one of the first pictures they had in the paper were these two guys on a bicycle holding the balloons, because you couldn't do that in that when the Taliban was ruling Afghanistan. You couldn't ride a bicycle. You couldn't have balloons. You couldn't smile. So like to me, like that photo just like embodied everything about the bicycle. These guys are like. Oh, it's like nine o'clock. The Taliban's gone. Get the bike. You know, <laughs> like riding down through Kabul on a, on a bike. You know, because that was all of a sudden freedom. You know. So, anyways, uh, I love bicycles. I think e-bikes are part of the bike industry, and I really hope and, and encourage you, everyone here in Sun Valley to help each other figure it out because uh, it's a good thing. Gravel bikes are a really good thing too. So kudos to Rebecca for promoting gravel bikes because we're big and, and, and same thing. I keep in the road bike community now. I'm getting people are canceling subscriptions to my magazine because we talk about gravel bikes and I'm like, it's a bicycle, you know. It's just a different tire size for goodness sakes. You know, it's like it's what's the deal? But again, this it's just needless gut checking. So conflict, bad thing. Let's get along. Let's ride bikes and let's just keep enjoying what we have out there. So I'm Rebecca Rush, a longtime resident of Ketchum, Idaho, and I came here before I was a cyclist. I, and I discovered paradise when I came here. I fell in love with this place, and um, the appeal was the open, armed community, the nature, small town, big life. It had everything that I wanted and, and um, nothing that I didn't want. I also discovered cycling here, and that's when I decided I was never going to leave. First, I'm a mountain biker, but I'm going to talk to you today about gravel and the exciting growth of gravel and the event that I've launched here and, and what that kind of means to our community. I launched Rebecca's Private Idaho because when I travel, people ask me, Ida, Ida what? Idaho? Ohio? Iowa? Like, where do you live? What is it? Is it potatoes? And so I launched Rebecca's Private Idaho six years ago. And to answer two questions, one, a little show and tell, um, to invite people here to this magical place and show them what it's about. Um, and number two, to really give back to my community and support this town that I love so that I could keep living here. That really was the, the, the only two reasons, to show people and to get to stay. So what is Rebecca's Private Idaho? It's um, an endurance gravel ride, and uh, since I'm a mountain biker, people since I'm a mountain biker, people always ask why gravel. And um, so, Private Idaho is a 100 mile uh, gravel event, 50 miler. This year, we're actually adding a stage race. We're adding a 25 miler, so it's kind of something for everyone. Um, but why gravel? It's because it's inclusive. That's the only word I can really think to to explain it. Everyone can come, you can ride whatever you buy, whatever bike you want, although I will tell you um, we don't allow e-bikes at Rebecca's Private Idaho. <laughs> Not yet, perhaps John Kurtz. Um, it is human powered, um, but everyone can come. Whatever ability level, whatever shape size, whatever age, and that's what we see. And gravel really is inclusive. It's a great equalizer of roadies, mountain bikers, new, old, and um, that really appealed to me, is to just to invite everybody to the party. 
how did I build it? Um, it was really simple. I thought about what do I love most about riding a bike? And there's two things. I love being out in nature, and that's why I designed the course to go over into Copper Basin and away from cell phone coverage and to escape. Um, and the second thing is community. So as people come back into cell phone range and they come back from this magical place that they've experienced on their bike, they're surrounded by a group of a ton of people who feel the same way they do and they're celebrating life on two wheels. And it was really simple. There's some people in the audience that six years ago I asked, should I do this, would people come? And, and it's really quite simple that, yes, if you, if you build something that is passionate for having a great time, experiencing nature, and then hanging out with your friends, um, it really is a very simple formula. And so people are asking, why is gravel booming? Why is it growing? It really is the best things that we all love about cycling, which are being outside and being together. Those two things combined into one really make a magical experience. So we're going to talk a little bit about the impact. My goal, like I said, was to be able to keep living here in this community, which means we have to have businesses that are thriving. We have to have people coming to town. And um, while we love, you know, it's called Rebecca's Private Idaho because of the remoteness of it, but we need to share that. And there's a lot of space to go around here. And so this is a little bit about the growth of Rebecca's Private Idaho in six years from 2013, which is the year of the fires. <laughs> the town was on fire literally two weeks and evacuated before the event and still 134 people came and they showed up and they rode their bikes and now we're looking at this year um, 1200 people to be lined up on the start line and, uh, and I limited it could probably be more um, I limited because I want people to have a personal experience when they come here and this is without big marketing budgets this is with a very small team of two people if anyone are in the audience now we have two and a half uh, basically um, this is really without a, a, a lot of extra funding a lot of extra impact um, it's just me kind of inviting everyone to the party, and it works. So here's a little bit of our local impact, and this is what makes me really proud. 84% um, uh, travel here in a car, 16% in a plane, 57% come from more than 200 miles away. And so there are a lot of people that are getting exposed to this town, and I'll tell you, nobody ever comes to Kachum Sun Valley one time. Never. So if any of you here for Gravel Academy, it's your first time here, be forewarned, you're going to come back. Um, people fall in love with this place. And that's my goal, is that you fall in love and you come back again. And this is what happens. And like I said, this is with just me doing it on my own with a few friends and a ton of volunteers and some local support. Um, over uh, half a million dollars uh, in local impact. 89% eat out, 30% ride mountain bikes when they come here, and the number one thing that I hear uh, when people come is next time I'm going to stay longer. And that makes me really proud that I invite them to my home and they want to come back. Why is this important? It's because we're adapting as a community and we're talking about um, cycling, you know, cycling is the new black, so to speak. And uh, what started, this, this town was started in the 1880s as a mining town. We're no longer a mining town. And uh, then in the 1930s, it became, became America's first ski resort for the rich and famous. And Hemingway and, and those people came here. It's a little different now. And now we really are a recreation haven. And cycling really is what has put this on the map with uh, nationals being here, mountain bike nationals. Now Rebecca's private Idaho. And people are finding that they can really explore this wonderland on two wheels. So we have a new crop of pioneers coming. And this time they're not on wagon wheels, they're on bicycle wheels. 
And um, it's pretty exciting to be part of that. You guys are part of that. I can't believe that we're actually having a cycling event with a whole bunch of people from out of town um, having a forum talking about cycling. It's, it's pretty amazing. So what is the future? The future of Private Idaho and my future, my goal is that when those people do come back who fell in love the first time, that we have something to offer them, that I have something to offer them. The first uh, Rush Academy gravel camp is gonna start tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. sharp with a bunch of new folks who are here. So when they come back, um, I'm bringing my work home and I'm bringing more friends home. And so when they come back, I wanna offer them Academy. I, we have the Queen's Stage Race as part of Private Idaho this year. For, instead of a one-day event, it's now a four-day event. Um, and I really want to enable riders to do more and to see more and fall in love more with this place. And like Hemingway encouraged under their own power by sweating up the hills and coasting down them. So why does this matter? Why does cycling matter? Because I really do believe that it's our future. And um, I'll end with another quote that whenever I see an adult on a bicycle, I do not despair for the human race. And what we found and what we love as children when we all learned to ride a bike and that woohoo feeling and just the feeling of freedom and joy. Um, I do believe that if we all found that as adults, our world would be in a better place, our community would be in a better place. And that's my mission with Rebecca's Private Idaho and Gravel Academy, Rush Academy. Thanks for coming, you guys. And um, I have to thank Adrian for pulling this together and having me here. Um, I'm really proud that sort of little old me has been able to do something like this in Idaho in my hometown. And I do hope that all of you will line up with me one day and, and go on a bike ride with me one day. And I'll take questions if there's any. John Kurtz, Zap Espinoza, and Rebecca Rush there at Ketchum's People for Bikes draft meetup, rounding off Crank Tank's Impact Media Summit. Now, I know many of you are hankering to hear the usual gang again. I'm trying my hardest to make that happen. Perhaps the start of the Tour de France next Saturday will get us together again. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.